All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for not only this Sunday, but we thank you for the tradition of Advent in which we began a new year as a church and began to think again about your promises and your fulfillment of those promises, about our Savior, and about the fact that he is everything, that he has rescued us from death and the pains and miseries of our sins, and that you are continuing to work out your plan in our lives. So bless us now, Father, as we study about how to better transmit the faith and the gospel to our children and our children's children, so that future generations might continue to delight in and celebrate the advent of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Last week I was talking about the family and culture, and I didn't finish that, so we're going to deal with that for part of the time this morning and transition to begin to talk about children and worship. Um, When we talk about family and culture, it's important that we not uh, segment our lives or compartmentalize them completely so that, you know, for the sake of discussion, we can talk about family or church or our lives outside of those realms and our work and other callings. And, and that's useful as long as we remember that these are overlapping circles, that they're never completely separate. So what we're doing here as a church should impact what's going on in your family. What you do in your family definitely impacts what happens here. And all of that certainly impacts the world in which we live. So as we think about Christ and his church, the church is his body. You are members of that body. You are always members of that body. You're members when you're sitting here at church, at the church building on a Sunday morning. But you are also members of his body when you're at home at your house in all of your relationships there. You are part of Christ. And so you are to be representing him in all those places, not just as we sit here to worship, but when we live lives of worship at home. God uses several images to describe the church, which are models that provide images for our marriages, husbands and wives, uh, the parent-child relationship, father-son, and in fact, for the entire household. The church is a household, it's a family. So we see that these images carry over. Just as the body of Christ, the church, is a community of persons with diverse functions that inevitably uh, produce a culture, so too is your nuclear family, which is an outpost and an extension of the church. And so a stronger self-conscious awareness of the fact that what we're doing at church should impact what we're doing at home is important. Now, I hate to say this. There are a lot of things I hate to say as a pastor, just like there are a lot of things you hate to say as a parent, but you need to say them if you love your children. And and I hate to say it, but it is true that many of you have never uh, really begun to take this seriously. And so you have never self-consciously studied or planned, much less set out to develop a distinctively Christian culture at your house 
And as a, re- as a result, your children will pay a heavy price. You say, oh, but we're Christians. We, we go to church, and we pray over our food, and we, you know, we do some of the certain basic Christian things toward one another. So I'm not saying that your faith hasn't impacted your family or that you don't have a Christian family, but I'm being more specific to say that I think many have not thought about every aspect of your household and how you might bring that to reflect a distinctively Christian culture. So, your tables, how you clean the house, your interaction with, in, in the midst of conflict, how you encourage one another, uh, how you show hospitality. I mean, we could go on and on. Every single area of life is to be distinctively and self-consciously Christian. And wherever it's not, it is something else. It is sub-Christian. It is even unchristian in some places. And if we're blind to that, if we think that that's not going to bear fruit somewhere, then we are sadly mistaken. It will. The body of Christ is not a slice of the pie of your life. You know, you have your work and your family and church and then, you know, recreation and all these other slices of the pie. Rather, the church, the body of Christ, is the pie. And the family, your family, is a slice of that pie. Even within our daily family routines, we are never separated from Christ. Our cooking, our eating and drinking, our conversations, our labor, um, our love, our lovemaking, our finances, child-rearing, discipline, and singing, our resting and playing, and our hospitality, our praying, reading scripture, worshiping, all are to be manifestations of the culture of Christ. Not one square inch is to be void of him. Thus, it is this daily, it's in this daily context that we take the lessons, that is, the theology, the doctrine, the exhortations of the church, back to our homes where we actually apply what we've learned. Uh, so I would ask you, for example, do you discuss these lessons with your children? Do you discuss the sermons with your family? Are you self-consciously listening and learning and, and, and going home and saying, you know, we really need to do more of this and less of that, or less of this and more of that? We need to implement some changes. That's what growth is. Uh, it is the opportunity to advance, to become stronger, better, healthier, more secure, uh, ready to serve, better equipped. And so, uh, this is essential. Um, there should be a self-conscious oozing out of the love of God and instructions from the Word of God that is omnipresent in our families. So fathers, let me speak to you a moment. As we seek to rebuild the broader culture through our churches and families, it is essential that the gospel light shines in the darkness and shows the way. And it was your home's are, if we think about the church being a light, uh, there's a lot of symbolism even in a church building, the, the tall building, the big steeple, all of that is to, to say to the community, here we are, 
We're always here. Uh, we're pointing heavenward. There's a lot of imagery tied up in a traditional church building. But, what, what, but what's important is when you leave here, all of that imagery is to become reality. In your neighborhood, you're to be that. Your family is to be that example, that light, uh, that influence, wherever God has put you. There is perhaps no place where this is, again, more needed than in the area of fatherhood. Sadly, the broader culture is increasingly a fatherless culture, an, an emasculated culture to the point where father hunger is one of the great needs of the day. The more fatherless a culture is, the more dramatic the symptoms of the famine at both the macro, that is the big picture, and the micro level. So whether we're looking at a particular home or just looking at the culture in a big sense, to the degree there is father hunger, that is going to be manifest in a lot of ways. Father love is the solution to that problem. A, per, a pervasive fatherless culture has led to our aimless, postmodern, emasculated culture. Who's to say? Who's to lead? Who's to protect? We're left without authority, guidance, and protection. All of these are fatherly provisions, and we are left empty and hungry. As Christian men, desperately, look, uh, we need to desperately look for an image of a godly father and household, uh, and therefore, when we do that, I think this is more of a warning here, it is natural for us to look to the past. And sometimes in our circles, we find those old images in books, and soon a movement is born that tries to recreate the nostalgic, uh, old, these nostalgic old images. Um, as charming and quaint as they might seem, they are frequently, in terms of where we live and where God has put us, as out of place as three-cornered hats and buckle shoes. Uh, and we just need to be careful about that. Somehow we think the golden age is past, and if we could just get to that, if we could just recreate that, that's what we need to be looking for. We end up looking silly, and worse, we become culturally irrelevant. We need to know what a father looks like today. Painting a new image using the old colors of Scripture. Learning how to worship and how to live in a community and how to pull together. You know, if we lived uh, 100 years ago in a small rural community, uh, or let's say we go back and you know, it was before the time of automobiles and telephones and pretty much we're in this small, isolated community, that's a very different kind of life. And, and God put people there and he called them to be faithful there and to do what was needed in that community. But we live in a very different community now. We live in a much broader, faster-paced, uh, more uh, mobile uh, community. So we have to take the same... The scriptures don't change, the principles don't change, but the circumstances of our lives do change. And so we need to know what a father looks like today, painting, again, a new image using the old colors of scripture, learning how to worship and live in a community and how to pull together. We have to learn how to live around the table and around our tables, around this 
big table, the Lord's table, and then around our tables at home. We'll say more about that later. And so we have to start thinking again. And that will take a self-conscious redesign. We're called to be fathers that truly represent the heavenly father. If you think about, if I say, what is your calling? Now, you, you know, if I say, apart from your, your work, your, your labor, what is your overall calling? Well, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And if you're a father, you have a, a more precise uh, calling, and that is you are to glorify the father by being a father. That is your chief end if you're a father, is to represent the heavenly father faithfully. Now, we could talk about those other images we mentioned, about being a husband, about being a wife or a mother or children. All of those also reflect various images the Bible gives us, all of which are to reflect the Trinity and ultimately a communion of love. And so, uh, this will feel awkward at first uh, because in many respects it's new. Everything new feels weird. Even the good stuff. It just feels odd. I hadn't done that before. I'm not used to doing that. And so there's only one way to get past that kind of awkwardness, and that's to do it. And do it enough that it feels normal, that it feels natural, that it just comes as a matter of habit. So just do it, even if it feels odd. And that's going to be true with things like family worship and other things we're going to talk about, uh, and, and also other aspects of your family culture. And so you, I, for, yeah, so, so if you do that, if you say, I'm going to be the pioneer here as a father in our family, we're going to do some things differently, we're going to do things better, in hopes that by the time my children are grown, it'll just be normal to them. This will just be the way it's supposed to be. Uh, that habit will have been inculcated. Uh, you know, we buy what is familiar. Uh, that's part of what advertisers go for, is to get you used to using their brand and to uh, feel confident, comfortable with that. That's something you know. And so when they start changing something, we get a little uneasy. We want that to remain the same. I think a while back I remember hearing some news, I don't know if they actually did it, that Kraft macaroni and cheese was changing uh, the color of the cheese in the box. It wasn't going to be as bright orange as it has been. Now, I don't think they've actually done that. I think they backed off of that. It's kind of like Crystal Pepsi or something. It just was a bad idea uh, because people are not familiar with it. And uh, even, if it was, even if it tasted exactly the same, it didn't look the same. And so changes, we should be suspicious of changes in our lives. And we're going to see, that's why liturgies are important. Habits and culture is important. But it's also why it's important you get it right, because if you get it wrong and you develop that liturgy and culture, it's really hard to change, because it's now become inculcated. And so, um, the question is, in regard to this issue of fathers in particular, what is feeding our imagination? It can't feed on what it hasn't seen or heard. Pop culture gives us father images. Buffoons and lovable idiots and old fogies and abusive fathers 
absentee fathers. But you see, we as Christians begin with an abstract knowledge, theology, what does God think, what does he have to say about this, followed by instruction and verbal images that are set before us through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Little by little, new pictures get drawn. So if I if were to ask you to imagine what is, a, what is the ideal father, I hope as Christians your first thought would be to go to the heavenly father. What does the Bible say about God the father? What kind of father is he? What kinds of things does he do? How does he discipline? How does he love? How does he provide? How does he protect? Well, that's the kind of father you're to be. That's the image. That's what has to be before. And if you can't clearly answer those questions from Scripture, you've got some work to do, fathers. You need to do some Bible study about the Heavenly Father so you know what it is you're trying to imitate. And then wherever you see places in your life where you're not imitating, so are you long-suffering? Are you kind and full of mercy? Are you righteous in your judgments? Do you chasten those whom you love, not chasten them because you're ticked off? You know, all these models have to be put into place. They're not just given to fill the pages of the Bible. They're given to transform us and to give us these images. Soon, these images become plausible. Next, they become habit or culture. And finally, and this is our goal, is they become generational. That brings us back to our topic of child-rearing. We are trying to inculcate this into our children, but remember that's not going to come just by taking them to church or even reading or telling them what the Bible says. We should do both of those. But more importantly, as fathers, we have to model that before them so they see that. So let me say a bit more about fathers and the gospel. Now the light of the gospel is the only light. So as the gospel light shines through fathers and then through the family cultures that are produced, they then, then through the family cultures that are produced by that gospel light, then the darkness of the broader culture is thereby exposed and dispelled. One of the things that ought to be being said about your family, by your neighbors and other extended family members who know you is, we want our family to be like their family. If they can't say that, to some degree, I realize everybody can say right off the bat, we're not perfect, we have our issues, we know that. But by comparison, your family ought to be such a model, such a light, such a delight, such a joy, that others look at it and say, yeah, I know they've had some problems, I know they've gone through some difficult times, but look at them today. Look at them now. That's what we want. Father hunger is really the hunger for love. True love provides, and it provides everything. And so the Father's first duty is to love and to love first. We love Him. We love the Heavenly Father because He first loved us. Central to love is giving or sacrificing for the sake of the Beloved. John 3.16, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this 
sacrificial giving is the model and the picture of fatherhood. And so every father, every earthly father, if they are to to fill the emptiness, must likewise give of themselves, sacrifice themselves for the sake of their families. Now, as you sit here, I know every family, every, everybody in here has an earthly father. Some of them are relatively good and godly fathers, and some of them aren't. And some of them have been awful fathers. Now, you can wallow in that. You can be a victim because your father wasn't all he needed to be. But I want to suggest to you, God has given you other fathers. He's given you himself, the perfect father. He's given you pastors and elders. He's given you other men in your lives, men, to model after, to learn from, to pay attention to, to be fed by. So you really don't have an excuse just because you've had it bad. The gospel, you see, is what changes all that. That's the good news, is no matter what kind of father you had, and all, and no matter what kind of father you had, even the good ones fell short, the gospel brings us to a heavenly father who's perfect. He's the model. And so, again, love is the ultimate objective. And so earthly fathers uh, must if they're to fill the emptiness of their children, must likewise give of themselves and sacrifice for their families, since earthly fathers represent God the Father, loveless, hateful fathers produce resentment toward God the Father. God-haters instead of God-lovers. I have several books that deal with biographies of some notorious atheists, And almost all of them came out of situations either with uh, abusive fathers or absent fathers or hypocritical fathers. And you see them reacting in their lives to that. Our father Abraham was the pattern for godly fatherhood. God had promised Abraham, quote, to be God to you and your descendants after you and to make you a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. Now that's the same promise God makes to every Christian father at some level. So, But God's covenant promises of blessing were conditioned upon Abraham and his descendants keeping the terms of the covenant. Not earning his blessing, but God says if you want to appropriate these promised blessings, these gifts, then I do have some expectations of you Abraham and fathers. It's all a part of God's gracious work, but as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. There it is. That's the condition. Keep the covenant. I'm going to keep my promise to bless you and to bless your children and your children's children, and then what you need to do is keep your covenant, your pledge that I'm your God. No other gods before me. No other things coming ahead. As for you and your house, you will serve the Lord. And so again, we read in Genesis 18, 19, God says, For I have known Abraham in order that he may command his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. 
So your, your, again, your job, your chief end, fathers, is to be a father and imitate your heavenly father by commanding, insisting that your household be followers of Jehovah through Jesus Christ. That's, your, that's the sum and substance of why you're here on earth. Everything else is to serve that. Your job, everything else you do is to serve that end. And when that's clear, you see, I don't think it's often clear for us. Again, we have this compartmentalized view of our faith often that has this as part of our life instead of being our life. And the overarching thing that covers all the other dimensions, I think that we... Uh, need to rethink this and, and really take this seriously so that now you think about your career choices, your financial choices, your educational choices, all the decisions you make in regard to what's good for your family now come under an understanding that this is my chief end. Notice the centrality of the condition of fatherly faithfulness. Abraham must personally keep covenant with God and his descendants must keep covenant with God. This means, uh, the means of accomplishing this would be Abraham's commanding his children and household to keep the way of the Lord. I like the word commanding here. And again, I'll just make a footnote here. I know uh, not everybody is in a situation that has a father that is doing this. And so mom, sometimes this falls on you. Remember, everything the Bible says to fathers, it says by implication to mothers as well. You're, if, you're, if you're in a good marriage and, and working together, that's the best situation, but you're working for the same mission, the same goal, right? So the objective is the same. And if you're in a situation without a husband, uh, then the mission hasn't changed. You've been moved into a new realm of authority and new responsibilities, but the objectives are the same. Commands his household. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, well, you know, they're teenagers. We can't do anything now. They're teenagers. Can't really make them do anything. Yes, you can. You're in charge. God puts you in charge. You can make the 2-year-old do it, and you can make the 12-year-old do it, and the 18-year-old do it. That's your job. I didn't say it's an easy job. Okay? Will they resist? Of course they will. They're just like you. You know? So don't, don't roll your eyes at them. You're the problem. You resist too. So model for them what non-resistance looks like by bowing before your Heavenly Father yourself and make sure they see that. All of this is the work of, the gospel, of gospel grace in the life of a godly father. So... Let me talk about uh, a term that we use sometimes in apologetics, uh, logical and analogical. We have, we have examples of this in the Bible when we have the heavenly Jerusalem and we have an earthly Jerusalem. Uh, we have uh, other types of the, the tabernacle, for example, uh, the heavenly tabernacle, and then the earthly tabernacle is a model of the heavenly tabernacle. So the heavenly tabernacle is what we'd say is the real one. And then the models on earth are 
the analogical, they, they're the representation of the real one. You got it? And so we have a lot of this in the Bible. God the Father is logical, and we as earthly fathers are analogical. We reflect Him. Another picture of this, some of you are old enough to remember analogical watches. Uh, now everything's electronic. But an analogical watch, the old one you wind and ticks, but really it's true of all clocks. They are analogical. Do, do clocks tell time? Well, they do. They tell time, but they don't create time, right? They, they reflect some other reality. Time is a reality, and a clock or a watch is just a means of reflecting that reality. What time is it? And that it's used other means of measuring time, calendars, but clocks is another way. And so we reflect the reality of creation, time, and then we use something that's created, a watch or a clock, to reflect that reality. So it's therefore essential that we have before us the proper form of a father without allowing it to become formalism. Formalism is form without substance. It's always an issue of the heart. We can't be simply technicians. And I do think sometimes when we have a child training class of any kind, that's often secretly what we really want. Where's my list? My list of 10 things or 20 or 100, whatever many, at least then I know I can check boxes and know whether I'm doing good or not. But life is not like that. It's not that we shouldn't have some list, but we should never make, try to make a list do what it wasn't intended to do. It is always an issue of the heart. We must be full of both wisdom and grace. Uh, if we are to make use of those lists, um, self-consciously setting before the world a true image of God the Father. Through this, we can change the world for many generations, and that is the work of the gospel. A word of caution for overcompensating fathers is perhaps needed. Um, men need not thump their chest, but rather to recognize that when we are reclaiming any area of lost territory, balance is essential. And I think I've seen some of that in our circles over the years, that we've seen deficits in families and in, in uh, child-rearing, and so we have often seen the pendulum swing uh, way far. And, and what happens in any movement is one-upmanship. You know, so, well, y'all do it this way. We do it even more than you do it. You know, uh, you, you have, uh, uh, you know, rules about food and, and bedtimes and schoolwork, and you ought to see our homeschool regiment. And it's... You know, and so there's this one-upmanship. You see, I saw this a lot, and we'll get to the subject of, uh, I'll just put it in quotes, a courtship, um, that a lot of, again, one-upmanship. Uh, that, well, if a guy's going to marry my daughter, he's got to, and you can just fill in the blank, and that list got to be ridiculous at times and unbiblical. But in any movement, whoever is willing to get out front and make the most outrageous claims and write the books and go be the speakers at the conferences 
and, and be the boldest in this new emerging movement. Uh, others who are uncertain and not clear what to be doing are happy to sit there and take it in and say, well, they act like they know what they're talking about, so I guess, I guess so. So we have a movement being born. And then often what happens is it takes a number of years for the results of that movement to start bearing its fruit, and that's when we began to see where there were shortcomings. Um, so we must be full of wisdom and grace. Um, men, again, in our rush to get out of the ditch on one side, we can easily fall in the ditch on the other side. And so uninvolved fathers, absentee fathers was a problem, and so now we began to have the uber-involved, micromanaging, authoritarian father who was going to manage everything and uh, produce perfect kids at the end of the factory uh, that he was creating. Um, so well-intentioned but overzealous fathers can also leave children hungry. Force-feeding is not the solution. As image-bearers of the father, we show the world what a father is supposed to look like. So that means, men, we have to begin by being great lovers. If I can just give a uh, a parenthetical, that is, we have to be great givers. Great lovers, great givers. Same thing. It's a high standard, but when the question is asked about you as a father, one response should dominate. What kind of man is he? He loves his family. There's no question about that. He's passionate about his wife and his children, and he shows it in how hard he works. He shows it in how he talks about them. He shows it in the time he spends with them. He shows it in the way he protects them and defends them and provides for them. And when the follow-up question comes, how do you know? Again, they say, we see it in his sacrifice for his family's sake. He is there when they need him. In fact, he's there before they need him. He defends, confronts, feeds, protects. He weeps and rejoices with them and for them. He never asks them to do what they haven't seen him already do many times. He is masculine, courageous, and loving, clear, resolute, wise, and gracious because he is imitating the Heavenly Father, in every possible way. This is where a Christian culture, family culture, begins. The head, the husband, the father, is not only the image bearer of God the Father and Christ the husband. He is the image setter for the rest of the family culture and ultimately for the broader culture. Not only what he says, but more importantly, what he does will become the model for the rest of the house and future generations. How are you going to demand, command your children to keep the way of the Lord if you're not keeping the way of the Lord? So modeling is absolutely essential. Dad does what's right even when it hurts, even when it hurts him, even when it costs him. He is the cultivator of the vineyard 
And it is that cultivation, or lack thereof, that will be the basis of cultural faithfulness. If a man is full of grace and godly character, he will act courageously, with clear and resolute purpose, especially when no one else is looking. It's easy when you're hanging around the other guys in the church to nod and agree and, and, and go along with what's being talked about and said in these areas. But doing it when no one's looking is what is the ultimate test of character. It's who you are. Like God, He is a man of His Word. If He said it, He will do it. It's as good as done. A man who self-consciously and joyfully does his duty before God and man is respected by those who are under his care. And emulation, and I was thinking about, I had a boss when I was first married working in retail. It was a large department store. And I had two different bosses there. One of them operated on the fear principle. He was just a tyrant, yelled and shouted and cursed and stomped his foot and threatened and pretty much did that with everybody all the time. And what I found was when he, when he was coming, people snapped to, got busy, looked busy. And as soon as he left, they stopped being busy. They started grumbling and talking about what a jerk he was. They couldn't stand him. If he went out of town, it was a celebration. He's gone for three days to a conference. Yay. Okay. Then we had another boss who showed respect to his employees who worked hard himself, who demonstrated what it was he wanted. And he, in doing that, actually demanded more than the other guy, and he got it. And he got it when nobody was looking, because we wanted to please him. He was somebody we wanted, we respected, and therefore desired to, to have him pleased with what we had done. To get a congratulations from him was powerful. And he paid attention to that, and he handed those out. The other guy didn't. All you, with one guy, all you were trying to do was avoid his wrath and crankiness, and the other guy you, you worked for because you respected him and wanted to please him. Fathers need to be like that second manager. A man who self-consciously and joyfully does his duty before God and man is respected by those under his care, and emulation of that character becomes the root of generational and cultural transformation. Like the Heavenly Father, an earthly father is a provider and a protector, but he must also be one with the vision to lead the family by example and to show them where they're going. Do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're taking your family? Are you just getting by, getting through, doing the, in, in, caught up in the routine of the moment? And there, are, there have to be routines of the moment. But be sure those routines of the moment are serving the greater good and the greater purpose. Christian family culture cannot develop and prosper without these clear images constantly being portrayed and reinforced. Families are outposts of the church, the kingdom of God, and fathers and husbands are building little cities at those outposts. So, 
I keep coming back to these big themes because I think, again, while on the one hand we would like those lists of do's and don'ts, and we've had some of those and we'll have some more, you must never lose sight of this big picture. The big picture is what keeps us going because the little things, the daily things, can grind us down and we can lose sight. But coming back and remembering why this is important, what our calling is, and going before God and crying out to him for his help, his strength, his power, his wisdom, all those things we're going to need in order to do this is critical. So I'm going to stop here for today. We're out of time, and we will take up little children and worship, both family worship, uh, what, what we need to be doing in that regard in our homes, as well as children in worship here in the, in the church, and what kinds of things you need to know as parents about teaching your children how to get the most out of worship, how to be part of the community, and how to, to glorify God in both of these areas. And they're certainly uh, uh, two parts of the same question. Father, we thank you again for the images you have given us in your word, particularly, particularly the image of yourself as a father. We are grateful, Lord, for you indeed are perfect Help us as fathers to imitate you toward our children and toward our wives and in this world that needs light. We pray, Father, that we would indeed feed those who you've put under our care, that they might be loved, that they might see Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.